Now, if you have a Bible with you and want to grab that this morning, we'll be in 1 Samuel chapter 25. 1 Samuel 25, as we continue our teaching series on the life of David. On the life of David, I was thinking about this story um, this summer as I was preparing for the summer. I was thinking about one of the things we did this summer uh, that we introduced our children to. So uh, this summer, we introduced our children to a key element of childhood. I hope it was a part of your childhood. I know it was a part of mine. This summer, we introduced our children to the concept of the water fight, all right? So that's what we did. We introduced them to the backyard water fight. We went out to the store, got those cheap plastic squirt guns, and we filled them up and got them in the bathing suits and went into the backyard, and we were ready to roll. I got my five-year-old, the three-year-old, the one-year-old has no idea what's going on, but let me tell you, the other two were engaged. They have the gun, and my son is looking at me, and I say, son, you go ahead, take the first shot, and I stand there as a father would and say, son, why don't you go ahead and shoot me? And he aims his little squirt gun and he shoots at me and it gets me all wet. And let me tell you, I think this is one of the highlights of his life. This was a great moment. He got me wet. He felt so good about himself, but I am a good father. And you know what good fathers do? They shoot back in water fights. And that's exactly what I did with my son. I took my little water gun and I aimed at him and he had no idea what was about to happen. And I shot back and he got all wet and I'll never forget what he says. He says, daddy, I do not like that. See, see, here's what happened to my son. Uh, my son got engaged in a water fight, and, and he thought the options were you can get wet or not get wet. But what he didn't realize is that once you sign up for a water fight, you are going to get wet. Once you sign up for the backyard water fight, the question is no longer will I stay dry or wet. The question is how will I deal with the fact that no matter what happens next, I am going to end up wet. I was thinking about that as we were coming to the story. And I was thinking about the fact that you may like this or not, but you are signed up for something called human existence. And in human existence, one of the things we want to often do is go through human life without challenge or conflict or issues of any kind. But here's what I need you to know this morning, that the question for you in your life is not this. It is not how will I avoid conflict. See, a lot of people go through life trying to avoid conflict. And they try to just never make anyone mad or never throw anyone off. And so they're constantly in conflict management running from conflict. There's about a limited utility to that, where we don't want to be causing conflict in our lives and the lives of others. But ultimately, here's what you need to know. There is no way for you to avoid all of the conflict that is coming in your life. Just like my son signing up for a water fight, there is no way to avoid being wet. There is no way to avoid the conflict that is inevitably coming in your life. So the question is not, how do I avoid conflict? The question that we will answer this morning is this one, how will I deal with conflict? How will I deal with the conflict that is already coming my way? Your life is filled with conflict. Maybe you have an open one right now. Maybe you know what it's like to go through life with conflict. In fact, if you're the person in the room who says, I never have any conflict, everything's perfect, every relationship I have has ever been perfect and perfect and perfect, I got nothing for you this morning. But just in case, you happen to be one of those strange people who has someone in your life that you're in conflict with, you might want to listen to what the Lord has to say through this story this morning. But maybe it's a conflict in your own home. Maybe it's a conflict with your spouse. As I've heard people say over the years, I've had a perfect marriage, 30 years, we've never had an argument, a fight, a disagreement. That's not me. Um, I, I love my wife and I care so deeply, and yet there's conflict sometimes between us, conflict sometimes in my greater extended family. I can have conflict with friends and people at church. Maybe you've experienced that at work with a colleague or a business partner. Maybe you're in conflict with a grown child. Maybe you're in conflict with your sister or your mom. I think for all of us, we recognize that conflict comes and finds us in this life. 
See, the question is not, how can I avoid conflict by all means? The question is, how will I deal with it when it comes to my doorstep? And here's why we are so fortunate as the people of God. The Bible is filled with people who addressed and took conflict head on. It is filled with people who came into moments where there was conflict, and we get to see how they resolved or didn't resolve those conflicts. And that's what we have this morning in the life of David, in the story of David, in 1 Samuel 25. You'll see here in verse 1, it begins this way. It says, Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him at his home in Ramah. So Samuel, the final judge, Samuel, the first prophet, who anoints David to be king, he dies. And they're in a sense of mourning, they're in a sense of transition, a national transition, when a treasured and loved leader has now died. Verse 1 goes on this way, it says, Then David moved down to the desert of Paran. A certain man in Moan, who had property there at Carmel, was very wealthy. He had a thousand goats and three thousand sheep, which he was shearing in Carmel. His name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. She was intelligent and a beautiful woman, but her husband was surly and mean in his dealings. He was a Calebite. Now, this is a fairly important story in the life of David, and yet I found it's not one of the most popular, well-known stories. That There's David and Goliath, David and Bathsheba, and this is one of those ones you might not be as familiar with. So let me give, just give you, for context, the three main characters we're going to look at today. The three main characters who drive this story forward. The first is David, and David is the angry king. I want you to know there are stories in David's life that we point and we go, be like David. And this is not one of those stories. This is the story of David's failure. This is one of the lower moments in his life. He is filled with rage and it's going to cause him to make decisions he would ultimately regret. The second is Nabal. You saw Nabal is this business owner, this tycoon. He is the wealthy, uh, the wealthy fool. He has thousands of goats and thousands of sheep. He is rich, he is wealthy, he owns businesses, and he is a fool. Now we call him a fool because the word Nabal in the Hebrew language is actually the word for fool. Now we don't think his mother, when he was born, held and said, I shall name him Fool, right? But what we think happened somewhere along the way is he got this as a nickname and it just kind of stuck to him. He is a wealthy fool. Uh, and then the third and final person you saw in this paragraph is Abigail. And Abigail is a wise woman. She's described this way. She is intelligent and she is beautiful. There's only three women in the Bible described this way. You've got Rebecca, or I'm sorry, Rachel, and you've got Esther described as wise and beautiful. And this is Abigail. Abigail is going to be the hero of our story, and you're going to see her story unfold here. It goes on in verse 4. It says, while David was in the wilderness, he heard Nabal was shearing sheep. Now, shearing sheep doesn't mean a lot to you, but this is a big moment in the life and the calendar of Nabal's life. Think about a farmer. A farmer plants seeds all year, and the seeds are growing up, and they're tending to their crop, but it only becomes payday when harvest happens. So harvest is the big day in the life of, or the big season in the life of a farmer, where they bring the crops in, and it's payday. The same is true for a sheep herder. Someone who has sheep, their actual payday is the day they bring the sheep in and shear them. This is payday for Nabal. He's about to make a lot of money. In verse 5, it says, So they sent ten young men to him. David is sending ten of his men over to Nabal. And here's what he tells the men to say. Go to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Say to him, Long life to you, good health to you and your household, and good health to all that is yours. Verse 7, Now I hear that it is sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them. And the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Ask your own servants and they will tell you. Therefore, be favorable toward my men, since we come at a festive time. 
Please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. When David's men arrived, they gave Nabal this message in David's name, and then they waited. So so to get the context again for this properly, it is sheep shearing time for Nabal. It's payday. He's about to make a lot of money. But David sends his messengers to Nabal and says, we've actually been working for you. We've been out among your shepherds. So here's what we need to remember. If you have thousands of sheep out in the field, they're out in the field in the ancient Near East, they are in danger at all times. And that danger for those sheep primarily comes in two different forms. The first would be wild animals who would come and tear those sheep apart. And the second would be other humans who come in to steal or kill or destroy those sheep. And so you've got shepherds out in the field with thousands of sheep, and David and his men have been acting as bodyguards for those sheep. David and his 600 men with their swords, with their armor, have been standing out there being bodyguards for the sheep. In other words, David and his men have been protecting Nabal's investment. They've been protecting Nabal's assets. And this is the story of David and his men coming to Nabal, saying, we've been the bodyguards for your sheep, and we would like you to compensate us for our work. That's what's about to happen here. We're about to see this conflict that stirs out of David asking to be compensated for his work. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is this David? Who is the son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. So he asks the question and goes, I don't even know who David is, which is obviously not true. And the reason you know it's obviously not true is because in the next breath, he says who David's dad is. He knows who David is. He knows what David is all about. This is not his ignorance of what's going on with David. This is like an ancient Hebrew way of saying, who does this David guy think he is? Asking me for money. And now it begins. A labor dispute. You've got David who has done some work and wants to be compensated, and you've got Nabal who is saying, I don't know who you are or who you think you are, but you're getting nothing from me. And the dispute begins. Verse 11, here's what Nabal says. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat I have slaughtered for my shears and give it to men coming from who knows where? So the dispute begins and the conflict starts to bubble up and everyone knows this is happening. And I want you to observe closely in the text what Nabal's response is filled with. You'll notice here in this text the first person language. Why should I take my bread and water, the meat I have slaughtered for my shears? You notice what Nabal does right away. Nabal sees a conflict coming and his first reaction is to think about himself. His meat, his water, his shears, his life, his money. This is what happens for some of us when we step into conflict. And this is what happens for Nabal. See, Nabal responds to conflict with self-centered arrogance. What happens for Nabal is conflict starts to stir up. And rather than saying, all right, hold on, hold on, let me talk with David. Maybe we can work something out. Maybe we can meet in the middle. The very first thing that Nabal does is think about himself, his life, his money, his resources, and his preferences. And this is a dangerous place for us to be. When we step into conflict and suddenly we start obsessing over ourselves and what we want, what's most comfortable for us and what's best for us, that is dangerous to us spiritually and it's corrosive to us relationally. Listen, self-centered arrogance extends conflict. It extends conflict. It makes it unnecessarily long, longer than it needs to be. The, The classic case of this is a married couple and some little conflict comes up and what happens is one person addresses the conflict and the other person withdraws. They stonewall, they back away, they don't want anything to do with it. 
They just want to live their life and have their peace and be in their space and do their thing. And so instead of stepping into the conflict and addressing it, they step out of the conflict thinking about themselves, self-preservation, and arrogance. And that extends conflict. If you're the type of person, every time conflict comes up, you run away, get into yourself, think about you, back away from the conflict. You are making the conflict in your life longer than it needs to be. This is what Nabal does. He could have stepped into it. Instead, he steps out of it. He says, it's my my stuff. I'm going to think about my world and my things. Then I want you to see how David responds. David's men turned and went back. And when they arrived, they reported every word. David said to his men, each of you strap on your sword. So they did, and David strapped his on as well. About 400 men went up with David, while 200 stayed with the supplies. So here we see two reactions to conflict. This labor dispute, this conflict that's going on in this story. Nabal is thinking all about himself. He's into him, he's not gonna be involved with this conflict, doesn't even wanna talk to David, he backs away, he's into himself with self-centered arrogance. David does the exact opposite. David responds to conflict with self-righteous anger. He is enraged. He is mad. He is angry and vengeful and filled with resentment. He is telling all of his men, 600 of them, strap on your swords. 200 of you stay back. 400 of you march with me. We're going to go kill this man. That is the rage and anger that David experiences in this moment. And in the same way, that a self-centered arrogance where you think about yourself is corrosive to your spiritual life and to your relationships, a self-righteous anger does the exact thing. When we are stirred up with anger, when we're stirred up with that, it damages relationships. Why? Because self-righteous anger intensifies conflict. Backing away, stonewalling, not engaging, it extends it. It makes it longer than it has to be. But if you are the opposite type, who is just kind of the fight type, who just wants to get in and destroy the other person, it makes the conflict worse than it has to be. See, David is walking in this kind of anger, this kind of rage, this resentment, this bitterness. He's willing to kill over this. And we, as followers of Jesus, and we, as people of God, need to be aware of the corrosive danger of anger in our life. It's not that anger is always wrong and always bad. But it is that we need to recognize what the book of James tells us when it reminds us that my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this, that everyone, including you and me, and including David, should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. You see Nabal, he withdraws into himself, he is self-centered, he is arrogant. You see David, he explodes with anger, he is self-righteous and rageful. And this is how they enter into this conflict. Verse 14 says, One of the servants told Abigail, Nabal's wife, David sent messengers from the wilderness to give our master his greeting, but he hurled insults at them. Yet these men were very good to us. They did not mistreat us, and the whole time they were out in the fields near them, nothing was missing. Night and day they were a wall around us the whole time we were herding our sheep near them. Now think it over and see what you can do, because disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household, and he is such a wicked man that no one and talk to him. So you have this unnamed servant in the story who approaches Abigail, Nabal's wife, and says, there's a disaster about to happen. Nabal responded really poorly, and David responded even more poorly. A bunch of people are about to die. Blood is about to be shed, all because of this misunderstanding. Can we work something out? And I love the model set for us by this servant, because this servant is just calling balls and strikes as they are. 
He's saying, listen, David is probably overreacting. A disaster is coming our way. But Nabal, he's a wicked man. He definitely did the wrong thing. He's willing to say things that are uncomfortable to Abigail, and he's willing to do so because that's the only way we can resolve conflict. Listen, I want us to take the lead from this servant and remember this in the midst of whatever conflict is going on in your life right now, then the midst of conflict, speaking the truth is always the right thing to do. It's always the right thing to do. And here's what I guess. I don't think there are a lot of people in this room who think, no, lying is way better. We should always lie, right? No one's like in the pro-lying party here. And yet what often happens in conflict is instead of speaking what is true and what is right, we kind of beat around the bush or we don't really say it or we outright lie to people because we're trying to spare their feelings. And what we need to know is this, that in the midst of conflict, you can be kind, you can be gracious, but you must speak the truth if you want to find resolution. Lying and controlling and manipulating and not sharing the truth because you're just trying to preserve everything never works in the long run. Speaking the truth in love, being someone who's just willing to share it as it is and say, this is where I am, this is what happened, this is how I see it, this is how you hurt me, this is what's going on. That is exactly what we need to do in the midst of conflicts, in our home, at our businesses, in our church, anywhere we go. This, this servant represents this for us so well. Verse 18, it says, Abigail acted quickly. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, Five dressed sheep, five sayas of roasted grain, a hundred cakes of raisin, and two hundred cakes of pressed figs, and loaded them onto donkeys. Then she told her servants, go on ahead, I'll follow you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. Verse 20, and she came riding on her donkey into a mountain ravine where David and his men were descending toward that, or to her, and then she met them. So this is the moment Abigail hears from the servant, she acts quickly. She goes and gets a ton of food and puts it on these donkeys and she rides out to meet David and his army of 400 men who are marching toward her house. I love the way one commentator put this. They said there's nothing um, that could stop a man who was angry in his tracks like a beautiful woman with a ton of food. <laughs> That's exactly what it is. He's marching down and he's got 400 men and he's going off to war and she shows up and he's like, stop. Um, and then this entire conversation ensues. This entire conversation between Abigail and David ensues. And we're about to see this story take a strange turn. Because what should happen in this story is David and his men should march straight through and kill Nabal and probably everyone in that household. But that's not what happens. What happens is that Abigail changes the story. What we're going to see in Abigail is the power of a peacemaker, the power of someone who steps in to make peace when everyone is going to war. And the first thing I see in Abigail's story is maybe the most significant thing for all of us to hear this morning. For the conflict you have in your marriage or with your mom or with your sister or with your colleague or with your neighbor, the most important thing for all of us to see in Abigail's story is simply this, that peacemaking requires someone to go first. It requires someone to go first. Peacemaking requires that if there's two parties who are tense with one another, that one says, you know what, I value the relationship over being right. What does that look like in practice? It looks like picking up the phone and calling your adult child that you've had a strained relationship with and saying, I'm so sorry. I know I've messed up. I know I've fallen short. I want things to be better. How can I make it right? It means a husband looking at his wife tonight after the kids go down to bed and say, I know things have been off between us. And I'm sorry because I know I've been a player in that. And I know I've made things wrong. How can we make things better? It means you going to the neighbor that you've kind of been in a cold war with for the last decade and not really spoken to and saying, I hate that we live next to each other, but we can't be friends. How can I make things right? 
See, peacemaking requires someone to go first. It requires someone to break the ice. It requires an Abigail who says, I'm going to meet this marching army that is coming toward me, even if it's risky. Now, now I've been thinking about what it means for us to go first for, for years. And, and, and in some conflicts, there's someone who is 100% right and someone who is 100% wrong. But here's what you know and I know. That's almost none of the conflicts in your life, right? Like, like most of the conflicts in your life are sort of like, yeah, I was kind of wrong and she was kind of wrong and we both said some things we shouldn't have said and it's kind of tense and we're just kind of at odds and it's not really great. I did some things, they did some things. And I remember being in premarital counseling. So just uh, like 11 years ago, uh, right before Danny and I got married. Uh, and as we were kind of working through some of the issues toward marriage, there were kind of tensions or discussions or arguments or, or, or things coming up. And then there was moments where it was just kind of tense or we didn't know how to work through an issue. And I remember asking our marriage counselor this question. The, the question was this, when two people are in conflict and both are at fault, who should apologize first? That was my question. And, and here's what I wanted the answer to be. I wanted the answer to be, the person who should apologize first is whoever is wrong. As a speaker, as someone who speaks for a living, I, I love that. Just whoever argues and whoever loses the argument, they should apologize first. Whoever is more wrong, whoever feels more bad, we ask this question, okay, if my wife and I, my fiance and I are in a conflict and we're both kind of in the wrong, who should apologize first? And I'll never forget her answer. She looks us in the eyes and says, whoever is more mature. Dang it! I hated that answer. Because again, I wanted it to be about who wins the argument. But she looks at me and says, whoever's more mature, whoever actually wants this relationship to thrive. And she was exactly right. That's exactly it. If you are in a tension, an argument, some kind of conflict with someone in your life, move first, move first, move first. Why? Because that's what we see in peacemaking. See, this morning I want to make a difference to you between peacemaking and troublemaking. Between troublemakers and peacemakers. See, troublemakers, the people who stir up trouble in this world, believe that the argument ends once one of us wins. Once one of us dominates the verbal sparring match. Once one of us just kind of overwhelms the other person with emotion. Troublemakers think the argument ends once one of us wins. But here's what peacemakers believe. Peacemakers believe the argument ends when we stop trying to win. When we stop trying to be the victor. When we stop trying to win over the other person. And we allow ourselves to step out like Abigail. So I want you to remember the words of Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount when he says in Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Do you want the blessing of God on your life? Do you want the blessing of God on your family? Be a peacemaker. Be like Abigail, who steps out, who moves first, even though there's fault on both sides. Verse 21 says this, David had just said, It's been useless on my watching over this fellow's property in the wilderness so that nothing of his was missing. He paid me back evil for good. May God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male of all who belongs to him. So you see, David is in his fit of self-righteous anger and rage. But then he starts to take on a little bit of Nabal. Did you notice what he said here? He said, it's been useless. All of my watching over this fellow's property, he's paying me back evil for good. David is even so dramatic in this verse here. He's talking about himself in the third person. This is what David is. David is so angry, he's so into himself, so into what happened to him in this conflict that he's actually descending to Nabal's level. I want you to remember that anger, a self-righteous kind of rage at everyone in the world will never elevate your life. It doesn't bring you up to the level God wants for you. It brings you down to the level of the person who wounded you. 
Anger is this thing that we so want to hold on to. We think it elevates us. We think anger makes us strong. But that anger, that rage that just bubbles up inside of us doesn't make us strong. It doesn't make us better. It lowers us to the level of the person who wounded us. In verse 23, it says, Then Abigail saw David. She quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before David with her face to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, Pardon your servant, my lord, and let me speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. Please pay no attention, my lord, to that wicked man, Nabal. He is just like his name. His name means fool, and folly goes with him. And as for you, my servant, I did not see the men my lord sent. But now, my lord, as surely as the lord your God lives and as you live, the Lord has kept you from bloodshed and avenging yourself with your own hands. May your enemies and all those who are intent on harming my Lord be like Nabal. And let this gift, the food she brought, be, uh, be your servant, uh, has brought to my Lord, be given to the men who follow you. Please forgive your servant's presumption. Now remember at the beginning of the story, we read that Abigail was beautiful and that she was wise. She was intelligent. We are about to see Abigail's brilliance here in the speech. And the brilliance she has here in the speech begins with the words that she just said here in verse 26. Notice she comes up to David and she says, The Lord has kept you from bloodshed and avenging yourself with your own hands. That's an odd thing to say to a man with a sword strapped on who's ready to go kill people. And yet that's what Abigail tells him. Like Abigail, in other words, speaks to him and elevates him from where he is. She doesn't nag him or berate him or judge him or shame him. Notice Abigail doesn't walk up to David and go, David, you're a man after God's own heart. You really shouldn't be killing people in cold blood. She doesn't walk up to David and his army and go, tisk tisk on all of you. You've really made a mistake. Warfare like this is really not appropriate for men of God like you. She doesn't shame, she doesn't nag, she doesn't bother, she doesn't put them lower, she doesn't insult them, she doesn't dunk on them. She simply comes to them and says, hey listen, I know that the God you serve and the God you love has stopped you in this time so that you can go in the direction he wants. This is so different. In this moment, she could have had the upper hand. She could have been the self-righteous one. She could have been the one who says, what you're doing is wrong and it's bad and I need to tell you that. But she's not here to make a point. She's not here to show her righteousness. So here's the distinction. Troublemakers aim to make a point. Their whole goal in conflict is to show that I'm right and you're wrong. Even in the context of marriage, some people do this. Their big goal in marriage, it's like here's the love of your life and your big goal is to show that you're completely right and she has no idea what she's talking about. And that's what they try to do. They try to make a point. You try to show that you're right and your husband, what does he really know? You're trying to make a point. But troublemakers never get their way. Because troublemakers aim to make a point, but peacemakers aim to make a difference. And the question as you resolve conflict is this. Are you trying to make a point or are you trying to make a difference? Are you trying to show how right you are and how smart you are and how clever you are and how justified you are? Or are you trying to actually move the heart of the person you're in conflict with? And the desire for all of us as peacemakers is to have influence on the person to actually change, to actually change the relationship and change the person and move the relationship forward. And here's what you need to know. The influence belongs to the people who speak to make a difference, not a point. It belongs to the people who are willing to speak in such a way that preserves the relationship rather than the person who just needs to say it and just tell them what for and let them know how wrong they are and how right they are. Abigail gets this. She gets this intuitively. You'll see this throughout her whole speech. It goes on in verse 28. It says, the Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord, 
because you fight the Lord's battles and no wrongdoing will be found in you as long as you live. She is looking at 400 men with swords strapped to them who are about to go murder in cold blood and she has the wisdom to say, you would never do anything wrong. Isn't that amazing? Isn't this amazing how smart Abigail is? She's brilliant. She understands that she could shame them, she could guilt them, but that's only gonna stir up their anger more. She's calling them back to God, drawing them winsomely back to who God is. She even says to David, because you fight the Lord's battles. And David probably goes, you're right. I am fighting the Lord's battles. But then there's probably a little bit of David's heart that goes, wait, but I don't think this is the Lord's battle. I think the Lord sent me out to be the king of Israel, not to be this guy who has a little conflict with this businessman named Nabal. This is what Abigail does. She returns David to his purpose, to his calling. She's calling him back to where it started. And I think this is a brilliant thing for all of us who are in conflict. Anyone here who is in conflict didn't set out to be in conflict with the person they love. If you're married, you didn't get married and get into this relationship so you could fight all the time. You got married because you loved one another and you envisioned a future where you were together filled with joy and laughter and memories. Draw yourself back to where that started. Why did you start this in the first place? If you're in conflict with a grown child, remember when you first held her or held him in the hospital room. Remember where this started. Remember where this was headed. Remember why you got into this thing in the first place. It wasn't to be right or to show yourself superior, to show that you had the right answer to things. It was to love this person. If you got into business or ministry with someone and there's conflict, you didn't get into it to fight with them. You got in to make a difference, to build something worthy of this world. That's what we remind ourselves of. That's what Abigail does here. She draws his heart and mind back to where this all started. She does it again in verse 29. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. Pocket of a sling? That should ring some bells for us. She's calling back to David and Goliath. saying, remember you trusted God at one point? Like at one point you just trusted in the Lord your God to fight your battles? At one point you just trusted that God actually had you in the palm of his hand? Where did that go, David? Where did that go? She's drawing him back to the beginning, lovingly, graciously. And then in verse 30 here, she's actually going to draw him forward to the next thing. Verse 30, when the Lord has fulfilled for my Lord every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him ruler over Israel, my Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed, of having avenged himself. And when the Lord your God has brought my Lord's success, remember your servant. So Abigail is going, remember where you started. Remember what this was all about. You were fighting the Lord's battles. He had you. He got you. And then she does something really fascinating here. She points to the future and goes, David. Someday you're going to be king. Someday you're going to be seated on the throne. There's going to come a day where you are the ruler all over all of Israel. And do you really want this on your conscience? That you were the guy who went in and murdered in cold blood over some money? Is that really what you want, David? And what Abigail's brilliance here reminds us of is that David is in a snapshot, a season, a little moment of his life. But that season will one day become a story he shares and talks about. And that brings us to a question that we should ask ourselves from time to time about the season we're in. It's a reminder that one day the season you're in will just be a story you tell. It'll just be a story. Every season you're in, one day you'll be asked about. You'll remember. What was it like when you were early on in your career? What was it like when you first had kids? What was it like when your kids left the house? What was it like when you went through that rough passage in your marriage? What was it like when you and your business partner were working through that deal? What was that like? 
Because the season you're in will one day just be a story you tell. And the question for you this morning is this. What kind of story do you want to tell? Do you want to tell a story of you withdrawing and being arrogant and into yourself and into your own life? Do you want to tell a story like David of a self-righteous anger where you lashed out and hurt people all around you? Or do you want to tell a story like Abigail where you say, listen, whatever happened in that season, I was trying to make peace. I was trying to make things right. I was trying to be a peacemaker because blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God. Verse 32, it says, David said to Abigail, praise the Lord, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you to today to meet me. So, so David identifies immediately that Abigail has said something that's changed the course and the trajectory of his life. And what he says is really interesting because he doesn't say, thank you, Abigail, for coming to me today. Notice what he says here. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you to me today. See, the really fascinating thing is that if God wanted to just speak out of heaven to David, he could have. He could have boomed from heaven and said, David, stop right where you are. But instead, God chooses to send Abigail. He chooses to send this woman. And he sends this woman into David's life to avert him from danger. And I think for all of us, whatever conflict we're in, whatever thing is going on, it is healthy and right and good for us to recognize that it is possible that the Lord your God has sent someone already into your life to help you navigate that conflict. So the question I want to ask for you is, who has God sent for you for such a time as this? Who's God already sent you? Maybe it's a parent or a grandparent, a sister or a colleague at work. Maybe it's a pastor or a Bible study leader, a small group leader. There's someone in your life who has already spoken into this conflict, but in your pride and in your arrogance, you've ignored them. Maybe it's time to go back to them. Because if God sent Abigail into David's life, then God can send someone into your life to speak wisdom and truth and to avoid the danger that you're marching into. Verse 33 says this, May you be blessed for your good judgment, for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. Otherwise, assuredly, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has kept me from harming you, if you would not come quickly to meet me, not one male belonging to Nabal would have been alive by daybreak. Then David accepted from her what he had brought to him and said, go home in peace. I've heard your words and granted your request. David goes, I'm so glad God sent you. Because if not, I would have gone and done this. It would have been a disaster. And so David accepts the food because his men are hungry. And so he gives them the food. And he says, go back on home in peace. You're good. You've got this. You're all right. But I love what he says to her in verse 33. If you've got your Bible, look down at that. It says, may you be blessed for your good judgment. See, Abigail has good judgment. She is a wise woman. She is an intelligent woman. We just walked through the brilliance of her speech. It was an incredible way to solve that conflict. And I know some people are going to look at that and go, well, good for Abigail, but I don't have those kinds of words. Good for Abigail, but I don't know how to navigate my conflict with my spouse, with my grown child, with my business partner. That's great for her, but what am I supposed to do? And the answer is, as we think about talking to people and reading the word of God and hearing sermons, even like this one helps us think that through. But do you know that the Bible gives us the exact answer to that question? When you don't know how to navigate a conflict in your life, when you don't know how to make things right between you and someone else that you love, you are not left to your own devices. You are giving a specific promise in the book of James. It's one of my favorite verses, and if you've not memorized it, I encourage you to put this verse to memory, that you might know this and hold to this when you're in conflict and don't know what to do. 
James chapter 1, verse 5, it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. If you don't know how to solve the conflict going on in your life, ask God for wisdom. And what God loves to do is to be a promise maker and a promise keeper. It will be given to you. He will give you the wisdom for how to navigate the situation in front of you. When we're in conflict and we don't know how to deal with it, God gives us the answer. He says, ask me and I will give you wisdom. Verse 36 says, when Abigail went to Nabal, he was in the house holding a banquet like that of a king. He was in high spirits and very drunk. So she told him nothing until daybreak. It's because Abigail has the wisdom of knowing timing. Timing is everything in conflict. Timing is everything in relationships. This is the reminder for all of us that as we talk about resolving relationships and conflict and issues today, the best time to do that might not be right away in this very moment. If you and your spouse are in a conflict and the children are in the back on the way home from church, this is probably not the right moment for you to solve everything. Moments and timing matter. Abigail gets this. You'll see what happens the next morning. Verse 37 says, Then in the morning when Nabal was sober, his wife told him all these things, and his heart failed him. He became like a stone. And then 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. What a fascinating and tragic end to Nabal's life. See, see, what actually should have happened in that moment is that Abigail should have said to Nabal, guess what? I saved your life. You acted foolishly, foolishly but I saved your life because I acted wisely. And what Nabal should have done in that, morning, in that moment is looked at, at his wife and said, I am so grateful I married you. You just saved my life and my entire household. I'm so grateful for you. But that's not what happened, right? It says his heart died within him. He actually collapsed in on himself. He was so overwhelmed by the thought that his wife was actually the one who saved the day that he was crushed. And it says 10 days later, he dies. And this is this vivid picture for all of us of what it means for us to not appreciate the good, wise blessings that God has put into our life. And here's what I'm convinced of. I want to speak to the men in the room this morning. I want to speak to the married men, the husbands in the room this morning. Because I'm convinced that all of us have a little bit of Nabal inside of us. All of us have a little bit of this, I've got this, I don't need anyone. I got this thing on my own, I can do it, I don't need anyone's input, I am strong, I am self-sufficient, and I don't need anyone else in this world. Thank you very much, I've got this thing. And gentlemen, if that exists inside of you, as it from time to time exists in front of me, let me remind you of the story of Nabal and Abigail. But because, listen, what we need to be is a people who hear and see and recognize and listen to our wives. Uh, again, men, let me speak to you. Uh, I don't want to give you glib marriage advice where I say, well, you're always wrong, and she's 100% of the time always right, and you're a fool, and she's brilliant. I'm not just trying to like lay that out that way. But because I think if we're all just honest, we'll recognize the simple truth, like your wife is not always right. I had someone earlier tell me, listen, I ain't, his wife comes up to me, she goes, I am not always right, but I am very confident in what I say. Um, and, and, and that may be the case. Listen, your wife is not always right, but gentlemen, I want you to hear me on this. Your wife is always worth listening to. She is always worth listening to. And Nabal's great error is that he does not recognize and celebrate and honor the wise and beautiful wife who is in his household. And gentlemen, married men of this church, may that never be said of you. May you recognize and celebrate the wife that you are married to, the wisdom that she brings, the knowledge and the insight that she brings to your marriage. Would you recognize that? Celebrate that today. Tell her that out loud. Don't just think it. Don't just feel it. Say it to her. Because here's what Proverbs 31 says. A wife of noble character who can find. She is worth far more than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. This 
is the heir of Nabal. He doesn't even recognize how good he has it, how wonderful and wise and beautiful and intelligent and insightful his wife is. And then may that never be said of us. The story's gonna close out this way and we're running up on time. So I'm, I'm gonna give you the summary of the last like six, six or seven verses here. Here's the summary of the last six or seven verses. Um, Nabal dies. David looks at Abigail, goes, she's wise, she's beautiful. She just stopped me from murdering people. I'd like her to be my wife. And he does it. That's the story. <laughs> you. And they become married. And then just to throw it in there, David decides right here in this text for some reason to marry another person as well. And that's the end of the story. He marries her, marries Abigail, marries someone else, and this leaves Christians with all kinds of questions. Here's David, man after God's own heart, multiple and many wives. What's going on there? We see the same in Solomon. We see the same in other Old Testament heroes. And so the question sometimes becomes, oh, oh, Brian, maybe in the Old Testament, God said polygamy was okay. It's okay to marry multiple people. But in the New Testament, he said, no, 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 it's got to be one man and one woman, just one but, but here's what we know from the Old Testament. Um, marriage wasn't randomly come up with. Marriage was established by God in the Garden of Eden, by Adam and Eve. And God's design for marriage from the beginning was one man, one woman, in covenant relationship forever. That's how God designed it. The desires of man, the desire to have multiple women, the desire to do this was always there, but the design was always of God, one man, one woman, covenant relationship forever. And so what we see in David is not some different design God had. We see his desire but that was never God's design. And here's why it matters for us to actually end on this. We need to remember that the life of David is filled with both faith and failure. It's filled with both. We don't look at David and say, well, anything David did, we will do. Jesus is the only guy we say that on. David, we can look at and go, there's his faith. But more importantly, we can go, there's his failure. See, if David were just a man of perfect faith, who never fell down and never messed up and never sinned and never went off the path, I would admire him. I just wouldn't learn a lot from him. And the reason I wouldn't learn a lot from him is because David's like me. David's someone who stumbles. David's someone who falls, sometimes who goes off track, who sometimes needs to be corrected, who sometimes needs to understand that the desires of his heart aren't actually the desires of God's heart. And this is one of those stories. This is one of those stories where we see David's failures. And it brings us back to the question that we saw right at the beginning. Like as we look at the story, the question we asked was this, how are you responding to the conflict in your life? How are you responding to the conflict in your home, in your business, in your church, with your neighbors? Are you like Nabal who has self-centered arrogance? You're just kind of into yourself and into your own thing. You don't want to deal with it. You just kind of push it away and you step back from conflict. You stonewall. You don't want anything to do with it. Are you like David with a self-righteous kind of anger? You just get stirred up and rageful and angry and it just bubbles up and everyone knows you're mad and you lash out at everyone. Or are you like Abigail? Abigail and her self-sacrificial peacemaking. Are you the Abigail who's stepping out and saying, I'm going to go first. I'm going to call her. I'm going to call him. I'm going to get coffee with him this week. I'm going to take her out to lunch. I'm going to try to apologize for what I've done. Are you going to be like Abigail who steps out, makes the first move, and makes peace? See, the story of Abigail moves us, and the story of Abigail stirs us. The story of Abigail is this beautiful story of this wise woman, but the reason the story of Abigail moves us is because her life points to Jesus. The story of Abigail is actually pointing to the story of Jesus. See, Abigail sees a conflict going on between David and Nabal, but Jesus sees a much bigger conflict going on between us and our sinful space between the holy God the Father. And God sends Jesus into this world to make peace in that conflict. And I want you to know that moving first element is there in the gospel. 
Like this is the gospel, not that you love God and move toward him, but that God saw you and moved toward you. The gospel is that God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. And it's that God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, God made the first move. God stepped in to make peace. It says in Colossians chapter 1 that Jesus makes peace by his blood shed on the cross. This is the gospel. This is the story of Jesus. That God sees the conflict and instead of just stepping back or just being filled with wrath toward us, he sends Jesus to make peace by his blood shed on the cross. And this same peace that Jesus makes with us is what he instructs us to turn around and to do with others. I remember... Back in middle school, um, I had a little conflict with a guy in one of my classes. And it was such a big conflict that I don't actually remember the guy's name. And I don't actually remember what he did, or I did, to cause that conflict. So obviously it was some real middle school drama stuff, right? But all I remember is in that moment, I felt like I was totally right. And this knucklehead was totally wrong. I was right, he was wrong, and he just needed to admit he was wrong, and then we can move forward. And then I found myself reading through the scriptures, and I'll never forget this tiny little verse I came across in Psalm chapter 34. It said this, seek peace and pursue it. And oh man, I did not want to hear that verse. I didn't want to seek peace and pursue it. I wanted him to come to me and say he was wrong, and then we can move along with the relationship. But the Holy Spirit of God is pressing on me, saying, no, 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 seek peace and pursue it. Seek peace and pursue it. And so I went in and did it, and I had a conversation with him. And I tried to seek peace. I tried to own my part. I tried to make things better. And let me tell you, it probably went terrible. I imagine he felt uncomfortable. I imagine it kind of went weird. And I imagine he has completely forgotten this moment, but I haven't. And the reason I haven't is because the moment I decided to say yes to the call of God on my life to seek peace and pursue it, I experienced the blessing of God like never before. Why? Because Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5, that blessed, blessed, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. So Calvary, here's the invitation for you. Be a peacemaker. Step out. Take the first move. Call someone, text someone, reach out to someone, shake their hand, say, we need to make things right. I need to own my sin. I need to make things right. I want to be a peacemaker. Be a peacemaker. Why? Because blessed are the peacemakers. They will be called children of God. You will experience the blessing of God. And as you make peace, I know you'll be glad you did. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this morning. And thank you once again for your word. Thank you for the story in David's life that points us ultimately toward you. God, help us as a church family in the midst of the wounds that these conflicts have caused, the pain, the heartache, the questions, the drama. God, help us to make peace. And I pray that as we go, that thousands and thousands of people who call Calvary their home We'd be reaching out to family members and neighbors and colleagues and friends and children this week, making peace. You made peace by your blood shed on the cross. Help us to turn around and do that for others. God, may we be peacemakers. May we experience that blessing. And may it be fruitful in our lives and the lives of others. We pray this in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen.